You're listening to PolarPod from the Oxford University Polar Forum. Hello and welcome back to PolarPod and our mini-series on carbon in the ground. I'm Sam Cornish. I'm Roberta Wilkinson. And we are your co-hosts. Each episode I send Sam out to talk to experts and he comes and reports back. So far in this series, we've learnt how carbon gets into the ground in the first place. We've learnt about permafrost, the great freezer of the north. And in the last episode, we heard about how permafrost thaw can transform a landscape. That's right. And we closed on this image of the Batagai thaw slump, which is the biggest thaw slump in the world. And a thaw slump was like where the permafrost had melted and the ground was kind of collapsing underneath it, right? Exactly. And Luki Yongyans, who we spoke to last time, told us how as the ground is collapsing, giving way, and this thaw slump is retreating through the landscape, mammoth tusks and even fully intact animals like the foal that she saw are being exposed in the wall of the thaw slump, which is probably why the locals call it the gateway to the underworld. And Sam, last episode, you promised us that we would step through that gateway and explore the past. I did indeed. And this is no mere flight of fancy, Roberta. (laughs) We are going back to explore an Ice Age environment called the Mammoth Steppe. And we'll see how much of the carbon that we find today in the permafrost owes its origin to the ecosystem that thrived there. Imagine looking down at the Northern Hemisphere from space during the last ice age. We can see big ice sheets sprawled across large parts of these northern latitudes. But there are also quite extensive areas of land where there is no ice. Ice sheets require significant snowfall to grow, and they only flow downhill. So these ice-free areas were dry and often relatively high. Let's rotate the globe now, so we're looking down on the part of the Arctic where Russia and Alaska meet. Now, today, they're separated by the Bering Strait. But during the last ice age, when sea levels were 100 to 125 metres lower, there was a land bridge between the two. And we can see that there's a region of unglaciated land that stretches across from eastern Siberia into Alaska. And from Alaska, there are ice-free corridors that extend southwards through Yukon and Canada between the massive bulk of the Laurentide Ice Sheet to the east and the glaciers of the mountain ranges to the west. This unglaciated land is called Beringia and was home to a biome known as the Mammoth Steppe. So let's bring our hybrid space-slash-time craft down to Earth now, somewhere in Beringia, and open the door. Mark Massius Faudia, Professor of Physical Geography at the University of Oxford, told us what would greet us. Given the density of fossils found and given their ages, you could sit on top of a hill and overlook a vast area of grassland with a huge diversity of very large animals. And most of these animals are no longer with us, especially the largest ones. Of course, it's called the mammoth steppe because of mammoth, but there were other very large amazing creatures such as the woolly rhino and there were a multitude of other mammals some of them are still with us they haven't gone extinct for example the musk oxen the reindeer and the horse not only that of course we had then uh, predators lurking around and a full fully functioning ecosystem 
which was uh, not uh, defaunated. Meaning that all the parts of the ecosystem were still there. It hadn't lost key members of the food chain. Large carnivores, for example, or key functional groups within the herbivores, it had quite a high diversity. But the density, the overall numbers, and the overall biomass that would be sustained by this mammoth step was high. On the order of magnitude of the densities of African game reserves that we, we still have today. So many times it has been compared to a Serengeti, but in the north. Wow, so the Arctic used to be host to all of these different animals, big herbivores, big carnivores. It was this huge ecosystem that's kind of amazing and so different to how we think about the Arctic today. Yeah, a Serengeti in the north, like you never think of the Arctic as being like an African game reserve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just think that's a totally wild idea and really beautiful to imagine. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It is definitely a... A mind-blowing idea. First of all, we are not used to think of northern lands and cold lands as extremely productive. One of the main things that would hamper this productivity are the low temperatures. And low temperatures are a great way, as you were mentioning before, to slow down certain processes. There are certain key processes that might be occurring pretty fast if you have a bunch of very large animals, even if it's cold, just because the physiology and the size of these animals allows for the processes to happen, basically be transferred in the animal. Because basically, you know, herbivore gods are, are, are big bioreactors, right? This is Jeppe Christensen, postdoctoral researcher at the University of Oxford, who you've heard from before on this series. So they're, they're hot and they're moist and they're just great environments for decomposition, as are our gods. So they can speed up processes even in these cold areas. The same area with no such animals might be extremely slow in its way of, for example, recycling nutrients and dispersing them. Wow, so in these really cold environments, kind of microbes, it's harder for them to do their job just in the general environment because it's so cold mm. but instead they're kind of doing their job and breaking things down and psych- helping nutrient cycling but within animals yeah, because exactly. they can because the gut's warm enough so what's that got to do with the rest of the ecosystem like why does that help well fundamentally it means that the ecosystem can be quite productive so speeding up nutrient cycles means pulling the nutrients out from whatever you're eating and turning them back into a usable form so that life can then again incorporate that matter. Yeah. So in this case, this nutrient cycling is happening inside the guts of the herbivores. Mm. And when they pee or poo, they basically deliver lots of lovely nutrients <laughs> to the soil and to the plants. Um, so that's kind of how it works to support uh, that ecosystem. Okay, yeah. And plants, it turns out, are a very important part of the story here in terms of how carbon gets stored in the ground. So... I wanted to turn our attention now to that vegetation that the mammoths and woolly rhinos would be walking through and fertilising and asked Yeppe and Mark what kind of plants we would see looking out from that hilltop. So there would be uh, grass, so it would be herbaceous communities more, so like grass basically, rather than these dwarf shrubs. You, you would be looking at, at, a, at a drier landscape than the current tundra, less wetlands, the Pleistocene was both drier, but also the, the herbs and the forbs with, with their deep roots and high evapotranspiration would make the landscape drier. What are forbs? 
They are flowering plants in general, uh, flowering plants that you will see in an open meadow. Grazing pressure from the herbivores and fire help to maintain these open meadows. Less shrubs than today, much more grass, much more open landscape than today. These dwarf shrubs, I really love them. They're incredibly beautiful, particularly in the, um, in the late growing season when they get their yellow and red colors. And the berries. And the berries, of course. But they're just not very effective carbon pumps. Grasses are, and they allocate a lot more of the carbon that they fix into the soil, right? They don't have huge structural parts of themselves to maintain, as do all woody vegetation. Um, so they, they have more spare carbon that they can, they can invest in the soil, into their microbial communities. So when plants grow, they take in carbon from the atmosphere and they put it into their structures, but they also can invest it in the ground. And what he's saying is that grasses invest lots of carbon into the ground, kind of more than other more complex plants or plants of more complex structures. But what does it really mean to kind of invest carbon in the ground? What What is that and why would a plant do that? Yeah, it's a good question and it's got a really interesting answer. So Yepi is about to explain how plants can use this carbon as a kind of currency to exchange with microbes in the ground. It may be most beneficial for the plant to actually invest you into the microbes that are surrounding your roots, So, what we, which is what we call the rhizosphere. The rhizosphere. The soil immediately surrounding the roots. Because what the plants get out of that is that they get nutrients in return for carbon. Because plants, they, they have easy access to carbon because they, they, they have their heads up in the atmosphere, right? And that's what they do. They fix carbon from the atmosphere. Um, however, the microbes uh, in the soil, they depend on the primary producers or the, the plants to deliver carbon to them, right? But, but they can be much better than the plant roots at getting nutrients from the soil. Um, so, so there are a lot of these sort of what we call synergistic relationships, so where the plants give the microbes something in return for something else which is often a carbon for nutrient sort of trading scheme. Sounds like a good deal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Everyone gets uh, better off that way. So these plants and microbes, they're doing deals with their carbon, their nutrients. Everybody's getting getting richer off this. They're collaborating. Yeah, we often have this view of nature as being really competitive in a sort of dog-eat-dog world. But it's quite nice to know that actually there are some kind of friendly exchanges going on even <laughs> under the ground. So in our mammoth step biome, we've got herbaceous plants like grasses and forbs. Forbs are the flowering plants. And these deep-rooted plants are effective carbon pumps. We know also that we've got these big herbivores munching away on them. The grasses that are really well adapted to herbivores being, being part of the system, they even have what we call compensatory responses to herbivory. So basically when the herbivores bite them or eat them, uh, they actually exude additional carbon into the ground, into their microbes, to compete better for the resources that are available. Because these herbivore-rich systems are also systems where a lot of nutrients as well are also in, in free flux, right? So everything sort of flows faster through that system. So if, you're, if you want to survive in such a system, you, want, you need to be a good competitor for, for immediate resource availability. Because, you know, they pee and they poo and whatever. So it's, it's quite sporadic uh, where that happens. So you need to be ready, right? And some of these grasses are really well adapted for that. So when the herbivores come and eat these plants, he's saying like if they've taken a bite out of some of them and there's like not as much plant left, they, in order to grow faster, they they take more nutrients from the soil by chucking more carbon in and trading that? 
Is that right? That's what I or understand no? from what Yep is okay. saying, yeah. Okay. And what what was the thing about them pooing and peeing, but like only in like ra- a bit randomly? So you yeah. is it is it that is it that the the nutrients are delivered back into the soil? The nutrients from the plant are delivered back into the soil through the pooing and peeing of these of these herbivores, mm-hmm. but that happens in like discrete places, yeah, yeah, yeah. and therefore like the nutrients aren't very well spread out. And so when you can get them, you you try as hard as you can sort of thing yeah that's exactly right they they get these big nutrient dumps thanks to these wandering beasts they've essentially developed to cohabit really effectively with these grazing herbivores mm. i wonder if there's a link in that like i guess when the grazing herbivore comes and eats them the herbivore will then like poo near them right and so yeah, true, true. there will be nutri- more nutrients they've just got to stay alive long enough to be able to capture that maybe i don't know maybe that's how it works okay so we've seen how the grasslands of the mammoth steppe ecosystem with a wide variety of grasses and herbaceous plants and these hungry mammoths and woolly rhinos these great bioreactors roaming around munching grass dispersing nutrients how this was actually a very productive ecosystem with a lot of carbon going into the soil but there's more to this story these grassy ecosystems may have also helped the carbon become stored in a more stable form. Because it turns out not all carbon in the ground is the same. Uh, So to place this in context, it's worth us recapping at this stage, Roberta, what we learned in episode one about how organic matter can stay in the ground if decomposition is slowed down. Do you remember the three ways to do this? Yes, so the first mechanism was uh, when the microbes didn't have enough oxygen, so anoxic environments, so that's places like wetlands. And that's like putting a lid on your food or shrink wrapping it. And the second mechanism is when things are acidic and the worms and the millipedes that kind of break down that carbon into smaller chunks, they really don't like those acidic conditions. So that helps to stop the carbon decomposing. Exactly. And that would be like coniferous forests, right? With lots of pine needles Mm -hmm. and, um, or maybe forests with beech trees in them. Yeah, well remembered. And the final one uh, was temperature. And that's the key for permafrost, right? When you lower the temperature, you slow down those microbes too. Precisely. And that's like freezing or putting your food in the fridge. So importantly, in all of these examples, the carbon is being preserved in its original organic form. This is known as particulate organic matter. organic matter, which is basically this undecomposed plant material. And this is what we compare to spaghetti bolognese in episode one. This complex tangle of long organic molecules in a kind of tasty source of smaller compounds. And this particular organic matter stays in the soil so long as the microbes aren't able to break it down. Yeah, exactly right. But then, then you'd be more or less conserved in, the, in that same uh, Bolognese state. But let's say the microbes are able to decompose this carbon. But, but if you go through multiple decomposition sort of rounds, you incorporate it into one microorganism. And then that bacterium dies and is eaten by another. Uh, and that can happen like several times. And each time that happens, the organic molecules become a little simpler. Some carbon is lost to the atmosphere as CO2 or methane if it's anaerobic. And the rest is kept in this simpler form. So imagine that the spaghetti becomes a bit a, a bit shorter each time, right? So we've taken the scissors to our spaghetti and are left with shorter, simpler molecules. 
these very simple molecules that are a product of decomposition, they can adsorb to the surfaces um, of mineral grains in the soil. Thus becoming something called mineral-associated organic matter. Small molecules, small organic molecules that are sort of stuck to the surfaces of the mineral grains in the soil. That's quite an effective way of uh, storing carbon in soils actually over um, decades to millennium. It depends a lot on the mineralogy and, and stuff like that. It depends on a lot of things. But there is some capacity in all soils for that. And this is particularly something that's important in grassland systems around the world. Because, you know, if you look at a grassland, you think, okay, there's not a lot of carbon in the soil here because you can't really see it the same way as you can see like a litter layer on top of the surface. And there's not a lot of carbon in that grass. Uh, this is terrible for climate. Let's plant some trees. That's often what happens, right? However, if you actually measure the carbon content in that soil and then include the subsoil, so going down to a meter or even better, two meters or three, it, it actually adds up to being huge amounts of carbon being stored in those soils. So, so far we've been talking about particular organic matter, which stores carbon in the soil if it's not decomposed. Mm -hmm. yeah. But now we've got this new way of storing carbon in the soil, which is just to kind of stick it on the side of minerals. So how does it help it? How does it stop it being decomposed by microbes? Yeah, so the, the technical explanation is that the molecules are physically and chemically adsorbed or stuck to the mineral grains and protective aggregates can form around them. Yeah. It's like what was a tasty snack is now... Stuck on the side of a bit of a rock. <laughs> yeah, and then you can't eat it, yeah. I guess. Makes sense. Okay. Now, Yippie told me that there are a few special conditions that are needed to help the carbon turn into this mineral-associated form. One is the availability of iron in the mineral soil, but crucially in its oxidised form. In this form, it's reactive, and the organic matter tends to bind with it. The cold and dry conditions of the time help to keep the iron in this oxidised form, and the dustiness of the period probably helped supply that iron and also helped to bury the carbon. Here's Mark. A key process that basically ensured that this was a pool, a big sink of carbon, was the fact that it was getting quickly frozen and buried by this aggrading sediment that came from the dustiness of the earth during glacial times. And the second thing is that the microbes appear to have been particularly efficient at using the carbon for growth rather than for respiration. I think one thing that's actually really interesting about this method of storing carbon is that it actually involves decomposition. Yeah, so you've had to chop the carbon up many, many times to get it small enough in a state where it's able to be stuck onto the side of a mineral grain. Yeah, and we know that that results in carbon being released. Yeah. But because these microbes were efficient, they had what's called a high microbial carbon use efficiency, bit of jargon there. As they chopped up the spaghetti, they didn't actually emit that much CO2 to the atmosphere. Mm. Okay. And so... Then the question is, well, why were these microbes particularly efficient with their carbon? Well, Yeppe says that the carbon use efficiency goes up when organic matter is available in certain forms that are easy for the microbes to handle. And the efficiency is particularly high when you have these root exudates. That's what Yeppe was saying about um, plants exshooting through their roots, the carbon into the soil, and animal excrements in the soil too. Okay. So, so both are of the form that's easy for the microbes to handle and use mm. and be efficient with, and both are characteristic of grasslands. Right, yeah, yeah. 
A final thing is that animals helped mix the soil and bury the carbon downwards. Grasslands tend to be rich also in bioturbating agents. Bioturbation agents are animals that move stuff around in the soil. Earthworms, prairie dogs, moles, whatnot, that can bury the carbon into the soil because you need something to, to bury it down into the subsoil, right? To expose that organic matter that always comes from plants, to expose that to these interactions with the mineral particles. We know, like, from some areas uh, along the Colima River, for instance, there's mammoth tusks thawing out of the same permafrost layers as ground squirrel nests. And there's no ground squirrels in the Arctic today. So we know that during the last ice age, ground squirrels and mammoths were contemporaries. All of these factors led to the mammoth steppe accumulating a lot of mineral-associated organic matter. And the reason why... I think grasslands will need to get more priority in our sort of carbon accounting is because mineral-associated organic matter is much more persistent to perturbations. And we know that perturbations will become, disturbances of the system will become more frequent in the future with climate change. We already start seeing it, right? You know, wildfires, droughts, extreme weather events, pests, logging maybe in some areas as well, right? You know, there's no one that wants to log that mineral soil. You can't really use that for anything, right? So it's just there. So it's a very sort of, it, it takes longer time to build than planting a forest, say. But once it's there, it's an extremely sort of persistent way of storing carbon in the system. And grasslands are extremely good at that. So even with things like forest fires, if there's a forest fire and it burns down your grassland and all the grass catches fire, then the carbon in the ground itself is actually mm. still there and it's not yeah. released by that, even though the grass itself is gone. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we just can't see the carbon. I think that's one thing where it's it's hard to get our heads around this because we look at a forest, we see all that carbon literally in those trees, whereas the vast majority of the carbon is actually underneath the surface and in grasslands yeah. that ratio of above ground to below ground carbon is particularly in favor of the below ground yeah yeah so in grasslands there's loads of carbon hidden below the surface being stored there yeah so roberta We've stepped back in time and peeked into an arctic of sweeping grasslands and abundant herbivores. And we've seen how the dynamics of this ecosystem help put lots of carbon into the ground, where it has been mostly happily frozen since. Um, But if we return for a second to the modern arctic, we not only of course see that this ground is now thawing, but we are also greeted by very different sights, um, smells and tastes. There are woodier and wetter ecosystems now with shrubs, mosses, berry-bearing plants and lichens. Yeah, it's it's not got all these different herbivores and these huge biodiverse ecosystems. Yeah, it's no longer a Serengeti of the north. Exactly. So what changed? That is a great question and we will tackle it, but it's going to be in the next episode. So we'll try to understand what has changed and what's caused this ecosystem shift. And we'll also learn about how some scientists are trying to turn back the clock and recreate the kind of Ice Age ecosystem that we've learned about today in a place called Pleistocene Park in Siberia. And part of the reason that they're doing this is that there are compelling signs that shifting back to this Pleistocene-type ecosystem can help protect the permafrost. And this is truly as wild as it sounds, so do stay tuned.
fantastic well i hope you enjoyed this episode as much as i did and please do subscribe rate and share and visit our website polar.ox.ac.uk to learn about the Polar Forum, our wonderful members and their fascinating research, which of course is not just limited to this topic. And you can also find us on Twitter. Our handle is at OxPolar. PolarPod comes to you from the Oxford University Polar Forum. It's co-hosted by Sam Cornish and me, Roberta Wilkinson. Reporting, production and original music by Sam Cornish and sound design by Jihad Zaheb.